Today's Access Utah episode was first broadcast in February. Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. In a recent commentary, Paul Rogers, forest ecologist and director of the Western Aspen Alliance at Utah State University, argues that forest managers' goal should not be to stop wildfire, but to reduce conflicts with it. The headline for that piece is, First the Savior, Now the Villain. Fire suppression is often overhyped in the American West. We're going to talk about wildfires in the West today with Paul Rogers and with Larissa Yoakum, Assistant Professor of Fire Ecology in the USU Department of Wildland Resources and the USU Ecology Center. Uh, Paul Rogers, welcome back to the program. Good morning. It's a lovely snowy day in it, Logan. It really is. <laughs> it's beautiful. We really need it, don't we? Um, uh, Larissa Yoakum, thank you for joining us. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. Uh, so uh, tell us a little bit about your background, uh, Dr. Yoakum. Where, where did you grow up? I grew up in western Washington, um, southwest Washington, near Olympia. Uh, my parents lived on a 40-acre parcel at the end of a dead-end road, so I was... Um, I spent my time out in the woods, and I think that influenced the career path that I ended up taking. Yeah, yeah, very good. Uh, Paul Rogers, I, I don't know if I've talked to you about that. Where, where, where do you hail from? Well, probably pretty opposite of what Larissa just said. I grew up sort of in suburbia, USA, in the Midwest uh, near Chicago, and, and uh, didn't have a lot of time in the woods. But once I caught the outdoor fever, I guess I caught the fever with fervor. Yeah. And by the way, uh, you, you sent me some materials, Dr. Rogers. Um, uh, let me try to find this. You say, longer term, I've been researching and writing about disturbance issues affecting Western forests for quite a while. Uh, you say it's only been relatively recently that you uh, got infected with the, 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 the pando bug. Is that what you, what you call it? The aspen, right? Uh, so, That's correct. Uh, oh, go ahead. Uh, I, I was going to say, that's, I, I've known you as the aspen guy, so, but, but your research obviously is broader. Yeah, it is broader, and it's certainly broader than just the issues surrounding Pando. And Pando, for those who don't know, is this uh, giant aspen clone in south-central Utah that that I've done some work on. But aspen issues at large, and then beyond that, sort of human impacts on uh, wildlands and forests, and in particular uh, disturbance and multiple disturbances. And, of course, you quickly run into the issues of climate and, and other things. So it, it goes on and on. And so in that way, uh, Larissa and I overlap a little bit. Yeah, well, let's let's get into this. Um, I just want to read a part of the opening from your uh, commentary. Um, you, you say, humans crave the spotlight in environmental narratives. We shape the land and fix the bad contours of late wildfires that caused celebrity the American West melodrama. And the first act consists of fixing blame, and that weathered adage, 100 years of fire suppression, is the clear villain. You say maybe we should revisit this storyline. So the headline of this piece, uh, you know, it's it's the savior, it's the villain, fire suppression. Uh, uh, if fire suppression isn't, isn't the key factor, uh, then what is? Yeah, well, I mean, if we cut to the chase, we could eliminate it in the next 45 minutes. We could just <laughs> say it's climate. And right. and when we say climate, people, that's a value-laden term now. But what I mean is all climate, past and present and future. Uh, and so uh, these things have, have, in my opinion, or not just in my opinion, the science clearly, clearly points to that climate has the biggest impact on what happens with our wildlands in general and our forests and the fires that occur in them. 
Uh, and you say in this piece, the 20th century's fire goes may be summed up as burning cessation and climate wetting. So you're saying, if uh, uh, relatively speaking, uh, a lot of wet periods in there, and that's going to obviously affect fire. Yeah, in a big way, and I think that we we got our confidence up in thinking that uh, the fire suppression efforts we made and they they increased in intensity and industrialization as the century went on, but we got our confidence up in thinking we were very successful when really a lot of that success, I I put the little quote marks around that word, uh, were backed up by a a relatively wet uh, century. And and you got to be careful when you say that to broad audiences because there certainly were very dry periods in there for the 1930s is the most outstanding example. Larissa Yoakum, what do you think? What what is the biggest factor? Is it climate with, with regard to fire? I agree with Paul that climate is a very important influencer on fire. But I give people a little bit more credit, I think, than he does in the relative lack of fire we had over the 20th century. I do think that suppression had a big role and other factors, too, that people had a hand in, including livestock grazing. So once the railroads were built, there were hundreds of thousands and millions of animals that were brought out to graze lands in the West that ate fine fuels. I think that had a big influence, too, in many, many ecosystems where basically they, they were the first, um, the first influence, I think, to reduce the amount of fire we had in the West. And then later some logging occurred. And then, as Paul mentioned, that, you know, we got really good at fire suppression probably mid-century, but that continued um, some of the other, other factors that uh, knocked out fire. And I think a better term for it is fire exclusion versus fire suppression, just because originally in the late 1800s, it's true, we weren't very good at suppressing fires, but we excluded them pretty well. Uh, so all these human factors, I guess we might lump these together as human factors, um, it sounds like you're, you're saying these had a bigger effect um, on fire than, than perhaps Dr. Rogers is saying. I think, I mean, again, I think I, I agree that climate is a, is a huge factor, and I think looking forward we, we need to think a lot about climate. But one of the interesting ways we can look at this actually is on the U.S.-Mexico border, and um, I have done a little bit of work in that region, and I've done more work in Mexico, and we can see there that in places with very similar climate, same ecosystems, um, fire continued on uh, much more uninterrupted in Mexico than it did on the U.S. side of the border. So I do think land use um, and human activities does also play play a role. And I, I guess what that means is that we have the opportunity to change fire outcomes even today. I, I think people have a role to play in addition to climate. Uh, Paul Rogers, what do you think about that? Uh, we do have a role to play. Is is that the case? You're just saying it's maybe a, a smaller role than sometimes we think? Uh, yeah, no doubt. I don't want to be misinterpreted here. And, and few of these things in ecology are all or nothing. And I think that uh, where where Larissa and I degree is, uh, disagree is maybe just on matters of degree. She certainly raises some excellent points, and and some of those studies from from Mexico are pretty classic. And so, so we have certainly influenced our landscape with all of the factors that she mentioned. But but going forward, um, fire suppression. Where is that going to lead us? What is it going to do? And and a lot of this this 
article is a reaction to platitudes that we hear from the agencies and in particular things that we get in our popular media. And the original title for the article was going to be Fire, Fire Suppression, Climate, and Human Drama. And so there's a lot of sensationalism that we get, and a lot of it's on the negative side. And, and one of those sensational uh, statements that can be boiled down and is often used in the popular media as well as around the, the, the federal and state agencies is that fire suppression for 100 years has really altered our landscapes. And, and I would say in most instances that that uh, factor is uh, considerably less than climate's impact. And, and the other thing that I'm sure we'll get into soon here, and I've talked to a little bit with Larissa in the past, is that there's really widely varying forest and grassland communities. That's another thing that gets set aside is really at least half of our fires are not in forests. Our half of our fire acreage are often in grasslands or rangelands or sagebrush country and so on. So um, I don't talk about that much in this article, but that is a, that's a really big um, acreage that, um, that I did not address. Let's just put it that way. Well, let's take that up. Uh, Professor Yoakum, what, what do you think about that? Uh, certainly in the popular media, we, we tend to just say forest, right, and, uh, or, or, or concentrate on destruction of, uh, of property and, and the like. Um, Professor Rogers is making a delineation about where the, the fires are. Yeah, I think that's a good point. I think that um, there are probably reasons for that. Um, you know, I think, in, for example, a lot of the Great Basin fires can occur where there aren't a lot of um, human developments. So I think that they get overlooked if they're not threatening communities. Um, and I think the other thing is that in grasslands, a lot of times um, in, in a healthy functioning grassland, when a fire burns through, the, the grassland is back the next year, greened up and productive as it was before. So I think that it's easier to see vast changes in forest ecosystems, which may be partly why they get more attention, but also potentially that they're closer to um, human, human communities. So they're just easier to see. Uh, so, uh, Paul Rogers, um, I want to have you reemphasize the, the point you just uh, made previously here. Um, and I'll quote from your commentary. The stories we tell ourselves nearly always involve a human-driven problem countered by a technical fix. Uh, so I think uh, you're advocating, I, I guess, greater humility on our part, right? Um, but what what is wrong with that narrative, human-driven problem countered by a technical fix? Well, I, as I try to... I put in a somewhat entertaining way in this commentary is that placing ourselves at the center often um, it sort of uh, separates uh, what we can do and what uh, what we can't do and and some of this hyperbole that comes out in the media when you hear them talk about fires they almost always use terms like destructive or uh, the, the, the forest is destroyed, it's, it's burnt to the ground, all these kinds of really negative things. And, and um, Larissa just used some really nice terminology. It's really just a change in the vegetation. It's, and, and, and an ecologist would see it as renewal. But back to the central point, um, my real fear is that folks are using uh, really hyperbolic words like mega fires and mega droughts and all these things. And I don't think they're warranted yet. 
but even more dangerously, it takes that um, it takes that out of our hands. It makes the problem too big and too overwhelming for people to do something about. And so, um, the main thing uh, that we could do something about, in my opinion, at least the opinion I've expressed here in this uh, essay, is that we should. Uh, learn to live with fire, number one, but also uh, stop developing in areas that are so highly fire-prone, uh, thinking that we can fix everything. We've become, in some ways, overconfident and, and not uh, showing enough humility toward the, the power and variability of our, of our Earth systems. Before we get to that, I definitely want to get to that, uh, the, the, you know, the human-wildland uh, interface as it regards to fire. Uh, Larissa Yoakum, uh, what do you think about this point of um, uh, where are you on this scale? How much can we fix? How much effect can we have? Uh, it sounds like you, you you perhaps think we have a little more control than, than Dr. Rogers thinks. Well, I actually agree with Paul um, quite a bit that we do have an overinflated sense of our control over wildfire, and I think we're starting to see that across the West we are pouring more and more money into suppression every year almost, and we still are seeing acreages increase. So I think that there is a false sense in general that we do have control over fires, where in reality, as long as you have fuels on the ground, fires will burn. That's that's a reality that I think we do need to accept. And so I think that what we do have a little bit of control over is the the way that fires burn. They We can have some say in the conditions that they burn, and hopefully also that means that um, we may be able to encourage fires to burn in less extreme weather conditions, for example, or, you know, using prescribed fire um, actually decide exactly when they they burn. So I, I agree with Paul that it's it's something that we think we have control over, and we've learned that over the past century, and I think that we're starting to see it's not, um, it's a little bit it's a little bit more akin to storms or other natural processes than a controllable um, event. Yeah, so, uh, um, yeah. Go ahead. Taking off on that theme, I, I really, I really like the way Larissa put that, and and so I, I like this analogy of how our society addresses um, crime uh, and fire. Um, and one approach is to have control out of it, you know, to to arrest a lot of people, put them in prisons, and lock them up. But we're finding that doesn't. Uh, work as well as we thought, um, and the other is to look at the the root causes. and And I think uh, Larissa and I are would both sort of back the idea, or that I'd like to get her opinion on, sort of backing up and saying, what is the ecology that's supporting the causes? And some of those are certainly driven by alterations that humans have made, but also it's sort of um, a lot of it is climatically driven. And we have the long-term problem of, of climate warming that humans are certainly at the, at the center of. I'm, I'm not discounting that at all. Uh, so it's this uh, uh, control versus sort of uh, understanding the cause and working with the system. Uh, that, that, that analogy of sort of, you know, lock them up ver you know, it would be akin to fire suppression or trying to control the entire forest versus understanding the cause and working with that and, and in the sociological sense in crime, which I'm not an expert in, but understanding why people uh, do these things, uh, maybe they're, they're very destitute or something else. Uh, so that's analogy that I've found useful in some ways. Uh, Professor Yoakum, what do, you, what do you think about that analogy? 
Well, I haven't really thought about it that way. I've I've thought about fires more as natural processes like hurricanes or other things that people don't expect federal agencies to be able to do much about. Um, but, yeah, that's an interesting thought. I, I do think that, yeah, the, the idea of total control is a fallacy. And so um, I, I agree with Paul that um, the more we can recognize that fire is going to happen, definitely, it's a matter of when and where, um, then I think that, that that will serve us well in, in, in knowing how to, to move forward. Uh, so, Larissa Yoakum, I want to follow up with your, it, it's, I think it's a good image, a uh, good way to frame it, uh, um, that uh, fire is perhaps like a storm, uh, or if you want it to a more severe image like you just did, a hurricane or, or something. Um, but that, it seems like we don't like to th- think of fire that way. We, I, I think we want to think we have some control. And, I, and we do. We have more control than we do over hurricanes, that's for sure. But, but I think that the, the inevitability of fire is what we're missing. So they, they will happen. So, the, again, the control that we have may be uh, managing fuels near communities, for example, to try to reduce the likelihood that a fire will be able to burn into a community of homes. Or, um, you know, doing prescribed fire in upper reaches of watersheds that are important, for example. Um, to try to reduce impacts to downstream reservoirs. So targeted um, management of our forests in places that are high value to try to reduce the, the, you know, the effects once a fire does happen. So I think we do have some control, but it's really more about the only way we really can, you know, influence fire is through the fuels. We can't control topography, which is another influence on fire behavior. We can't control the weather, uh, you know, day-to-day weather. Um, and so, really, the fuels are what we we have a, an ability to change. And I think uh, you you I think you study uh, this, don't you? What, what what is your recommendation? What what should we do be doing with regard to the fuels? I think that there has to be every tool in the tool chest available to managers, and I think that that's happening. Um, the, some of those things include thinning trees, so making them less dense. And that reduces the likelihood that a fire will be able to burn through the canopies of trees. Those, those fires are called crown fires, and they tend to be more destructive and much harder to control. Um, prescribed fire, where managers are lighting fires in the forest to reduce fuels. Um, and then one of the tools that I think is, is really valuable is, is managed wildfires, where wildfires that start through lightning in mild conditions are not immediately jumped on and suppressed, but they're allowed to do a little bit of ecological work um, in places that are far from human communities. I think that's a way to get much more acreage treated than prescribed fires, for example, or or thinning, which is really expensive. Um, So I think all of those tools have to be considered, and I think that um, you know, again, near human communities is probably where we would want to do the most intense management of fuels um, to prioritize, you know, if we, we, we can't treat everywhere, so prioritizing where we do that work. Uh, I think high-value areas is the, is the key. And you've uh, you, you broached a topic, uh, uh, Paul Rogers did earlier as well, uh, this uh, human-wildland interface. I want to talk about that following a break, so let's take a break. Um, and I'll just uh, throw this out here. I 
a uh, perhaps somewhat uh, controversial statement from Paul Rogers in this commentary uh, to, to kind of get you thinking uh, before the break. And then we'll, we'll treat all of this following the break. Uh, Paul Rogers says, if we don't allow building on floodplains, why do we facilitate dwellings in fire-prone forests? Uh, we'll talk about that much more following this break. Programming on Utah Public Radio is supported by our members and Golden West Insurance Services, providing Utah State University alumni affordable options on auto, homeowners, RV, and umbrella policies. Available at any Golden West or USU Credit Union branch from Logan to St. George. Details at usucu.org. Support also comes from USU Extension. Drought conditions are moderate to extreme in Utah this year. New USU Extension website offers information and resources at extension.usu.edu slash drought. Today's Access Utah episode was first broadcast in February. Thanks for joining us for Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. We're talking about wildfires uh, on the program today. And we have with us Larissa Yoakum, who's Assistant Professor of Fire Ecology in the USU Department of Wildland Resources and the USU Ecology Center. And Paul Rogers, a forest ecologist and director of the Western Aspen Alliance at Utah State University. <clears throat> You're welcome to join us with your question or comment by email to upraxcess at gmail.com, upraxcess at uh, gmail.com. Uh, so Paul Rogers, um, in, in this commentary... Uh, you are, uh, uh, let me pull this up, you said the, the goal should be not to stop wildfire, but to reduce conflicts with it. And of course, probably the main way to reduce conflicts with it is that we're they're not building property out in the middle of the forest, right? That we're, we're not, uh, I guess the, <laughs> the, the ideal from that perspective would be we're not there. Right, but but we are there, I guess. Uh, it, what, do you advocate uh, what moratorium in in these areas? I guess you, you can't remove the the property that's already there, but moratorium on uh, stopping people from uh, building in fire zones. You made a, an analogy there to uh, floodplain. Yeah, I did, and uh, let me get to that in a second. I want to return to something that Larissa said. Is basically, I propose a gradient of intensive management, or what we call active management, doing more so closer to where there's developed housing and other kinds of facilities, and less as you go away from that into uh, the forest matrix, into roadless areas, and into wilderness areas. And uh, the part of that is that we, we understand the, the active management and we can do that well and we should concentrate our efforts there uh, for fire protection of properties already developed. But we don't understand well is this whole fire suppression industry is, is keeping hands off a little, at least a little bit more so at those areas distant. And that's what we're not very good at because there's so much inertia within this system that it's a really, it's a difficult train to stop all of this money going into fire suppression uh, when in many instances it's not even required. Now, to your point about the, um, um, about, uh, you know, building in a floodplain, clearly we're building in really fire-prone areas. However, we quickly leave the bounds of ecology and we get into the sociological aspects and the economic aspects uh, and the political aspects of how our country is organized. And that is, in my opinion, even more difficult to deal with. And basically, uh, in the U.S., we like to own property and sell property and develop property wherever we want. 
And uh, just a caution, the forest that looks so beautiful and inviting and is wonderful to go to with your family today could be a severe hazard tomorrow. And uh, I would like to see not explicitly moratoriums, but uh, us having a little bit more control on where we allow people to develop. Because ultimately, obviously, there's there's um, there's loss and cost of property, but more more seriously, there's threats to people's lives, and in particular, lives of firefighters who are put in danger in some of these situations. Uh, you know, imagine somebody actually getting hurt or killed um, defending a home that's a second or third development property for somebody recreationally. So. I'm not suggesting a moratorium, but I'm suggesting there's a lot more we could do as a society to avoid developing in these areas that we know are so prone to fires. Lucy Oakham, I'd like you to get your thoughts on that. Uh, should we, uh, as uh, Paul Rogers says, it gets us into economics and politics and such, but uh, should we, uh, as best we can, slow down development in these areas? I agree with Paul. I think, I mean, I also agree that solutions are pretty tricky, but if you think about how much money we spend on suppressing fire every year, and it's true, a lot of it is put towards defending cabins or other um, properties that are in far-flung remote areas. Um, I wonder what we could do to, you know, purchase some of those inholdings with that money instead so that fires can just move through those areas instead of having to be defended. Um, I actually was just looking at a uh, I was trying to find an example of a fire that really just did no harm at all, and I, my, I had an idea about the Box Canyon fire, which burned in the in the Uintas in 2016. As far as I can tell, it didn't burn any cabins. Um, it didn't um, cause any harm downstream, and it was about a 5,000-acre fire. But then I found that it it a firefighter crew coming from the Midwest crashed on the way to the fire and two people were killed. So I agree with Paul. There are risks to firefighters, um, and I think they should be included when we think about what they're being asked to defend. So in that case, there was there was really no reason to suppress that fire as far as it turned out, but we still had some damage, you know, um, in the form of, of lives lost. Uh, so, I, yeah, I think in, in cases where there are cabin properties or other other homes that are intermixed in the forest, I think I think having hard conversations about the, the how much it, it how much we're willing to risk to defend those homes from fire is is a good conversation to have. But again, I think the solutions have to be have to involve economics and um, policy in addition to fire ecologists. Uh, uh, a follow-up. Um, so uh, what about, uh, um, I guess, reducing fuel loads, other techniques to protect property ahead of time? I, uh, what, what, what would you tell property owners or governments? What, what can be done? Are, are there effective things that can be done so that if, if a fire happens, uh, you don't need firefighters to go out there? There are... There are definitely things, and there are lots of resources out there about trying to um, fire safe properties. So that means managing vegetation around homes, having no overhanging branches, um, not having wood piles under a deck, for example. Um, but and, and that also, there are building um, recommendations. So screening in vents, not having wood shingle roofs, 
not having wood decks. So there's lots of lots of recommendations out there and good good suggestions. Um, if a per, if a home was absolutely perfectly fireproofed, I think that it's possible that a firefighter wouldn't have to go out there. But my fear on that is that it might those houses might not be aesthetically pleasing to the people who want to have their homes in the woods. So I think sometimes even when people have the information that could make their home more uh, safe from fire, they may not want to, um, they may like the look of a, a, a wood shingle cabin in the dense forest, for example. Mm. Uh, I want to follow up on that. Yeah. What, uh, what what would it, yeah, before I go to you, Paul, uh, um, what would a cabin look like that uh, you're saying it probably wouldn't look like they wanted to? What would it look like if it's uh, more fire, you know, uh, retardant? Well, I think it would probably be a little more modern looking. So using materials that are fire safe, um, there are some modern materials that don't have to look like concrete, but, um, you know, not very much vegetation surrounding the house. No wood deck, for example, uh, and no, no trees very close to the house. The main way that houses catch on fire is by catching embers. So the house itself has to be... Um, have no nooks and crannies open to embers. Um, so even the gutters have to be cleaned out. But, um, you know, vent, vent covers and uh, smooth walls, nothing where an ember could catch and light, and light the house. So um, a perfect house would be a concrete block. But, of course, I think that there are, um, there are modern materials, I, but they may cost a little bit more as well um, to make it to make a fireproof house. Yeah, interesting. Yeah, I hadn't thought about that. Yeah, a concrete block would be uh, a very good uh, deterrent to, to, to fire, maybe not excessively pleasing. Uh, so, Paul Rogers, you had a comment. Well, I did, but uh, just a, one more thing on design. I was at a conference in Australia, which is, you know, very many, very fire-prone landscapes, and they they had a whole session on design of homes, and, and they look like a lot like you might see an avalanche-proof house, pretty much concrete and steel. Uh, but they're, they're sort of bunkers, but they made them aesthetically more pleasing. But, but the, the, where I'd like to turn the conversation a, li- a little is that we've become used to in the United States uh, that if you have that cabin in the woods, the example that, that Larissa gave of the Box Canyon fire, you know, say there's a scattered cabin or two, a lot of times they'll assess damage by how many buildings. It might be an old outhouse, any kind of structure at all. But what, but the cost of fighting that fire might easily shoot over a million dollars, uh, and so we have a trade-off. What's the cabin worth compared to that? That's a purely economic trade-off. But what we've become used to in the United States is that if I have a cabin in the woods and I've gone there with my family for two generations, that I expect those guys to come running, guys and gals to come running over the hill in their yellow shirts and defend that at the drop of a hat. And I think we've become complacent rather than taking the risk uh, ourselves as individual property owners in these really um, fairly fire-prone and dangerous landscapes sort of be willing to let it go and to get out safely, of course, but not expect that, uh, not only not expect that the fire won't be put out, but then we have a number of people who even uh, conduct lawsuits or lay blame on the federal or state government or whoever's responsible for surrounding lands uh, because the fire came onto their property. And so how do we put more of the responsibility back in the the homeowners or the developers' hands who build these structures in the first place. Uh, 
and sort of if I live in a wildland area, I need to be willing to let that cabin go. It sounds harsh. However, uh, the trade-offs of spending millions upon millions of dollars fighting fires uh, for little purposes, I can see a lot of them, uh, and, and also the risk to people's lives, of course, even more important. So if we can put more of that responsibility back in, in people's hands and say, wow, you are developing in a floodplain, essentially, in a dangerous place. Uh, before we leave this uh, this interface uh, question, very important question, and, and, and Paul Rogers say reducing conflicts is, is one thing you're saying we should emphasize. What about what about a whole town? I'm thinking about uh, the campfire, right? And and uh, paradise. Are, are there things that, that could have been done, or uh, you know, to to protect that town better, or is this kind of a perfect storm kind of a thing? Uh, I'll let Larissa take that if she wishes. Oh, okay. Well, yeah, I think that that's. I think one in recent years we've started to see wildland fires burn into communities like that, which has been um, terrible, terrible to see. And I, I think that's, a, I think that, I think we, you know, Paul's right that we have changing climate. We're already seeing things change. Um, and I think we also have an opportunity that we, we can do a better job of um, of communicating with people about reducing fuels around their homes and maybe in surrounding, you know, areas close to those communities. The, the thing is, it, it, it really it costs a lot of money to do those treatments, and so prioritizing where to do them is difficult. It's, the thing with fire is that you never can predict where the next one like that is going to be, where those high winds will be and where the ignition will be. So um, I feel like land managers are doing their best with their resources that they have. Unfortunately, a lot of the funding is now going to suppression um, and not as much to the prevention. So I think we need to, to, to support some of those fuel reduction activities close to communities, um, but it is hard to, to do it everywhere. And the other thing about it is that they have to be maintained. So even if you do a treatment one year, fuels grow, fuels are plants, and so you have to come back and, and maintain those treatments, and that's another reason why they are expensive. Yeah. Uh, so anyway, yeah I, I think a, that, I, yeah. It raises Go some ahead. really important issues, and in reference to Paradise, uh, California, or I've visited Idlewild, there are many, many towns, and, and by the way, the nation's most populous state, uh, that are developed in forests, I mean, very wooded neighborhoods, and 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 many of the homes that built in, uh, excuse me, that burnt in Paradise, California, were actually mobile homes. So you have, you have income issues, you have development issues, you have, as Larissa suggests, a lack of focus on uh, preventative measures in and in and surrounding the town. But you have really large trees. Uh, I've visited Idlewild, California a couple times, growing in and among the entire town. So it's a very forested town with almost no lawns and some of the things that would be uh, preventative in our more developed areas. So, so you know, standing back and taking a more strategic look, as Larissa suggests, and, and focusing our, our money we're in places that are already developed on prevention, but also reducing further outgrowth and in ex-urban areas uh, around the western states where they're just in very fire-prone landscapes. Let's take another break. When we come back, uh, I want to make a connection to climate change. 
Um, and this term uh, Paul Rogers used is used in your commentary. Uh, the media th- throws out the term, I think, with increasing frequency, megafire. You're saying technically uh, a lot of these fires uh, don't reach what, the, I guess, the technical term for that would be. Um, and we'll talk about much else. Also, just to ask each of you to, you know, what else we haven't talked about that, that you just want to bring up onto this subject. Uh, we'll have more following this break. UPR is supported by Idaho National Laboratory. INL has collaborations with every state in the U.S. More information about INL's connection with each state is available at inl.gov forward slash 50 states. Did you know that mental health therapy can be just as effective when delivered remotely rather than in person? Acceptance and commitment therapy, a common treatment for mental health challenges such as anxiety and depression, is being delivered through a web app to individuals with limited access to services. This online therapy is easy to access and low cost. Many of us are experiencing a strain on our mental health during this COVID-19 pandemic, and those online tools can help mental health to flourish and can target specific issues as well. When many in-person services have been suspended, remote delivery technology helps provide support to those who need it. This segment of Did You Know That has been brought to you by our members and the Emma Eccles-Jones College of Education and Human Services, committed to mentoring tomorrow's educators, researchers, and clinicians, located on campuses in Logan and 26 other sites throughout Utah. Today's Access Utah episode was first broadcast in February. Thanks for joining us for Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. We're talking about wildfires in the West on the program today. And our guests are uh, Paul Rogers. He's a forest ecologist and director of the Western Aspen Alliance at USU. And Larissa Yoakum, assistant professor of fire ecology in the USU Department of Wildland Resources and the USU Ecology Center. So Paul Rogers, you write uh, here, I'll just quote this, recent history has not yet shown us mega droughts surpassing individual decades or mega fires scorching tens of millions of acres. But without reversal of humanity's fossil fuels habits, future use of these hypermonikers may be well placed. Those um, hypermonikers are being tossed around. Um, but you're, you're saying it's going to yes, get even are. worse. Qu- quite a bit, and that's probably the impetus for writing this commentary in the first place there was a a movie going around a couple of years about the mega fires in the west and and we should point out and, and the audience probably knows that just fire in general uh, particularly in our news media is is um it's emotional it's um it's it gets your attention it's almost for everybody and so and as i suggested earlier it's also often spun in a negative light uh but this idea of these mega fires and 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 um you know this giant thing that spun out of control and often pointed to the reason being climate change, I think is misplaced and potentially harmful. And the reason being is that it it could uh, it lures people into the idea that it's first of all it's not that what we've done to our forests in the past various management experiments over the last century or so. But it's really out of our control. It's this thing that's overwhelming. And so it breeds complacency, and it says the problem is out of our hands. It's just too immense to even consider. So, um, you know, why is that out of our control? Where, where it, It's not out of our control where and how we live and what we deal with for tomorrow's fire 
um, and and how we interact with fire today, fire that's inevitable, as Larissa suggests. So uh, I have some concern about the use of these terms, which are, which play so well in our media. You know uh, that that stuff that's easy to put on a headline, and I think it's in effect it's harmful in getting us to address the problem on the ground right now that is not sensational. It's about us living day-to-day with fire in our midst. Uh, Larissa Yoakum, uh, I want to have you talk about climate-fire relations uh, relationships. That's one area of your study, right? But first to Paul Rogers' uh, point that uh, how we frame this in the media, how we frame it in our minds is important, isn't it? It is, and that's something else. You know, I agree with Paul. It, it definitely... Um, Fire is portrayed, as he mentioned earlier, as this destructive force. We, we hear about it destroying forests. Um, and I think even uh, I hear about it being a very bad fire year when lots of acres burn. And I think that, that you know, that's not actually a good metric for what is a good or a bad fire year. I think that acres burned is actually... Uh, we need more fire on the landscape. Just from a purely ecological point of view, fire is not a good or a bad thing. It, um, lots of communities depend on it ecologically. So I think that a better way to look at a good or a bad fire year would be some of the human costs because we do, you know, we are people, we care about our watersheds, our communities, lives lost. So I think that having metrics surrounding those things versus acres burned would be a better way to to consider whether a fire year was good or bad or whether an individual fire was, quote, unquote, good or bad. Um, so, yeah, I think considering fire as a catastrophic event is not, ecologically, that is not the case um, in, many, in many instances. Um, although we do, we, I mean, we do have some fires that are, that are behaving in ways that are unusual for the community, you know, for the vegetation communities they are burning in. So fires can, can be detrimental to natural ecosystems, but they are not necessarily bad. Now, having established that uh, we don't want to sensationalize in the media, uh, Larissa Yoakum, I'll start with you on this. Uh, I I don't know. I might be leading us to violate that. Um, so we don't have megafires, which you would technically call megafires right now, but left unchecked, climate change. Will we get there, do you think? Will we have that? Is that in our future? Well, I think I don't know if we have a definition for a megafire, but we're already seeing... <laughs> I, we, we, there is a trend in the western U.S. for bigger fires and in some areas more severe fires. So that means more, more negative impacts on, on ecosystems. Um, and so I, I think we're already <clears throat> going down that path of, of changing fire. Since for the, about the last 20 years, we've seen this increase in, in acreage um, and again, that's not necessarily bad, but combined with some of the high severity events, that means tree killing in places that historically experienced low severity fire. So fires that just burn through the grassy understory. Now in some of those places, those, those fires are burning through the crowns of trees. And, and, and so, so I think we're already seeing a change in fire. Um, and I think that there's no reason to believe we're going to start seeing less fire on the Sounds, um, yes, sounds like we lost uh, Paul Rogers, maybe there. So we'll we'll okay, get him we'll get him back quick. So go ahead, Larissa Yoakum. Okay, um, yeah, or or so less fire or 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 more 
benign fire on the landscape. I think we are headed probably towards a future where fire is going to be in the news every year. Yeah, yeah, probably, probably very, very much the case. Uh, we just have about oh, six or seven minutes left in the program, and uh, I wanted to ask each of you, I'll start with you, obviously, Lucy Yorkham, right now, um, what would you like to highlight from your research that we haven't talked about so far? Well, I think that what I would like to highlight is kind of what I was just touching on, is that forests are not all the same, and neither are fires. And so um, I think, you know, people think about, um, you know, for example, ponderosa pine, which grows in near the Uintas, it grows in southern Utah and farther into the southwest, but also in eastern Oregon, uh, Montana. That is a, a species that has historically burned with these low-severity surface fires. That means fires burned along the grassy understory, um, didn't usually kill the overstory trees except for in pockets. Um, and so that's one type of fire and one type of forest. But there are other forests that historically did burn with high severity where the, the fires burned through the canopies. And, and so ecologically, that's, even crown fires don't necessarily have to be a destructive force. And the example, the per perfect example of that is lodgepole pine, where in some cases those trees regenerate once they're burned with a high severity crown fire because their cones open with that heat. So I think that, that I think that's something that I, I want to highlight because um, because I think that you know the diversity that we have in our forests, in addition, the diversity of fire is is really cool and also makes it. Um, it, it makes it more complicated, but it also, I think, gives more perspective to some of the fires that we're seeing today. Paul Rogers, we have you back. Yeah, yeah go ahead. No, go ahead. Uh, that, that'll, that'll do. Oh, that'll do. Okay. Uh, Paul Rogers, we've got you back. That's good. Um, so we just have about five minutes or so left in the, in the program. And uh, I just asked Dr. Yoakum to highlight an area of her research that we haven't uh, covered. Maybe I'll ask you the same thing. Is there something your research that, uh, and it could be totally unrelated to what we've been talking about that you'd like to highlight. Well, one thing, I, can you hear me okay now? Y yes. Mm -hmm. Yeah, um, one thing I'd like to, to come back to, and this is really almost a whole other program, is the role of Native Americans uh, and, and Native American burning prior to Euro-American settlement, because it's often used to bolster arguments about more fire or less fire and human interactions with it. But but generally speaking, some folks make the argument that Native Americans used fire uh, across the landscape almost evenly, uh, which doesn't fit, and it doesn't fit with the research. But that's a, it's a topic that I'm really interested in. And then another thing I'm really excited about is to, to return back to, to my uh, other theme of Aspen, is I'm doing some ancient fire work uh, in and around the, the Pando Aspen clone looking at ancient charcoals in a study, uh, a type of study called pedoanthropology, and we're hoping to get that uh, information out soon and published, but there's some pretty exciting things, uh, you know, dating, dating fires back several thousand years or lack of fires in the instance of the Pando uh, clone area. So pretty excited about that, and, and uh, I'm always interested in uh, both modern human interactions with fire um, decisions they make, the humans make, uh, but also uh, Native peoples and how they lived with fire. Of course, totally different societies with, without the uh, sort of capitalistic interest in owning land and so on. And that has really interesting ramifications for um, how they, those folks uh, interacted with fire, uh, you know, for, for eons, really. 
Just have about three minutes left. Um, so kind of a follow-up to previous question, Larissa Yoakum. What, what are you working on right now that's got you excited? It's probably everything you're working on got you excited, but what, uh, pick something. <laughs> I, I think one of the projects I'm working on that's very exciting is with uh, in collaboration with some colleagues in our watershed sciences department. We are starting a new project that is looking at how fuel treatments, um, so that means prescribed fire or thinning, other, other things you can do, to treat fuels in, in, in the forest are, can reduce um, fire severity, which in turn may reduce the risks for downstream impacts, including um, impacts to fish habitat, but in particular, reservoir storage. So Utah depends on reservoirs across the state for, for water. And so this is a project that has a lot of interest from forest managers and water managers across the state looking at how, how our forests practices can help reduce impacts to, to those reservoirs. So that's something I'm, I'm pretty excited about. We have a pretty big team of people and students working on that project, and um, we're about getting close to a year into it. So um, it's, it's exciting work. Yeah, that does sound exciting. Uh, so Paul Rogers, got about one minute uh, left. What, what's got you excited? Well, yeah, I, I'm, I'm excited. In, in, well, first of all, I'm excited that Lewis has come to our campus and the work that she's doing here is it's really interesting and it's fun to work with her and learn from her. Um, but ultimately, I kind of wonder if you back up and ask the big questions about fire and how humans are interacting with it, ultimately, are we getting what we want out of our interactions? And we're spending huge amounts of money. And, and one cost we didn't actually attribute yet is that all that money going to fire suppression in the federal agencies is taking away from, you might say, their day-to-day -day job of managing all the other resources. So, But uh, the question, are we getting what we uh, really want out of our interactions? Uh, um, the, watching the nightly news would tell us that the answer would be no, so how can we improve on that? And I'm interested in sort of looking at that, that issue. We're good. We're at the end of our time. Uh, very interesting discussion. Uh, thank you. Paul Rogers is a forest ecologist and director of the Western Aspen Alliance at Utah State uh, University. Uh, and you can uh, find him at uh, Western Aspen Alliance. I guess that's the best place, Paul Rogers. That works out just great. Okay. And uh, Larissa Yocum is an assistant professor of fire ecology in the USU Department of Wildland Resources and the USU Ecology Center. And uh, her website is larissayocum.com. Thank you so much. Thank you very Thanks. much. Thanks uh, for having us. Thank, thank you. Appreciate you both coming on. It's the Beehive Archive on Utah Public Radio. I'm Megan Weiss. Steam locomotive engines need water. A lot of it. But here in Utah, the second driest state in the lower 48, finding water to feed these steam beasts was a real problem for the railroad companies. Learn more about how they solved this dilemma after this. I'm Jody Graham, Director of Utah Humanities. Beehive Archive is brought to you on Utah Public Radio by Utah Humanities with the generous support of the Lawrence T. and Janet T. D. Foundation. We are proud to partner with community organizations to tell Utah stories and hope you will tune in each week for the Beehive Archive. Welcome to the Beehive Archive, a two-minute look at some of the most pivotal and peculiar events in Utah's history. Cool, clear water. This is more than the refrain from Marty Robbins' classic Western song. It was an absolute requirement for steam locomotive engines pushing and pulling railroad trains through Utah during the 19th and 20th centuries. Each steam locomotive had the capacity for 15 to 25,000 gallons of water, so they needed lots of it to keep the trains moving. 
As the Union and Central Pacific Railroads entered Utah Territory in 1869, both companies faced the critical need for access to clean water. In western Box Elder County, the track line originally built by the Central Pacific Railroad passed through the margins of the Great Salt Lake Desert. Even if railroad workers could find groundwater, it was likely full of minerals and salts, which are bad for steam boilers. So, what do you do? If you can't bring the trains to water, you bring the water to the trains. Stations and towns along the line had large water tanks high above the track, so trains could pull underneath and fill up. These water tanks were filled either by trains that carried extra water and special cars, or by long-distance underground pipelines. For example, the railroad town of Terrace, created in 1869 and abandoned in the 1910s, relied on a 12-mile buried pipeline that brought water from the Grouse Creek Mountains in northwestern Utah. Originally, the pipeline was made from roughly cut redwood logs, with a three and a half inch hole running straight through the center. By the 1880s, the pipeline was upgraded to iron, and an extension was built to carry water to the nearby town of Watercress. The extension was made from pipes that resembled a series of narrow barrels, with long slats of wood wrapped in metal bands. Even today, these pipes are underground to remind us of the past. After World War II, Diesel locomotives were widely adopted, and the heyday of cool, clear water on the railroad was traded over for the era of fossil fuel. This episode of the Beehive Archive was contributed by the Utah State Historic Preservation Office. Find sources and past episodes at utahumanities.org. For the Beehive Archive, a production of Utah Humanities, I'm Megan Weiss. Support for Project Resilience Programming on Utah Public Radio comes from our members and USU Center for Persons with Disabilities, working to create healthy, inclusive communities through innovative research, service, technical assistance, and education. Information at cpd.usu.edu. This is Utah Public Radio, a statewide service of Utah State University and the College of Humanities and Social Sciences, KUSR Logan, KUSK Vernal, KUSL Richfield, KUST Moab, KCEU Price, KUSUFM Logan, also heard at upr.org.